Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that broods over the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we take a look at the latest news stories with David Campbell, including electric car charging stations power up in New South Wales, with NRMA set to add 40 around the state. We road test the Subaru WRX, including some comments from our artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver. And in our discussion session, we take a reflective look at the life and times of Holden in Australia. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. If you have an electric car, you would be hard-pressed to take it on holiday, with only 50 charging stations across the entire country and just 11 in New South Wales. The NRMA is set to change that with plans to establish a network of fast-charging stations for electric and hybrid cars in New South Wales. The plan involves a phased introduction of at least 40 stations at a cost of $10 million, The NRMA and the Electric Vehicle Council believe vehicle price and a lack of charging infrastructure are barriers to growth in the uptake of electric cars in Australia. According to the EVC, sales of electric vehicles across the nation slumped 23% from 2015 to 2016. The Council's Chief Executive Officer said that Australia is not ready for the forthcoming increase in electric cars. The fast charging stations would allow a typical electric car with a range of 500 kilometres to fully charge within half an hour. The first of the fast charging stations will be rolled out across Sydney, the Blue Mountains, the ACT, Illawarra, the Mid-North Coast and Newcastle. A new round of crash testing from the US Insurance Institute for Highway Safety illustrates that not all new cars are as safe for front seat passengers as they are for drivers. The insurance industry-funded agency said that in a new passenger side crash test performed on 13 mid-size cars, some do not offer the same level of safety for both front seat occupants. Only five mid-size cars that were tested provide the same level of protection for passengers as they do for drivers. Five more manage good scores despite not earning top marks overall. Rumours that Fiat Chrysler will end the production of right-hand drive vehicles have been denied by Fiat Chrysler Australia, meaning that the V8 Chrysler 300 will continue to be on sale here. The rumour originated from the South African arm of Fiat Chrysler, who issued a press release, but FCA Australia has committed to ensuring that the production of right-hand drive vehicles will continue. And that's just as well as it's understood that the New South Wales Police Highway Patrol is close to selecting the Chrysler 300 SRT to replace the Holden Commodore SS pursuit cars. The New South Wales Police are also considering the BMW 530D, the Kia Stinger and the Volvo S60. Recently, Overdrive reported that in the US, Ford was planning to cut production of sedans and focus more on pickups and SUVs. Now General Motors has announced the same thing. Recently their CFO said that GM will continue to reduce production of passenger cars in order to retool its product mix in favour of trucks, SUVs 
and crossover vehicles that customers are buying. The move is part of GM's larger strategy to trim off unprofitable businesses and focus only on its most profitable markets. That increasingly means shifting its product mix more towards crossovers, SUVs and trucks. Shares in General Motors are up more than 30% so far this year. Ford stock has barely moved and Tesla's shares has risen almost 60%. Toyota will use the Tokyo Motor Show to unveil a pair of hydrogen fuel cell powered concept vehicles including a 59-seat bus set to be released in anticipation for the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games and a sedan with a 310-kilowatt output and a 1,000-kilometre range. The bus concept vehicle, called Sora, includes Toyota's ITS, or Intelligent Transport System. This uses vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure connectivity for safer driving and priority at traffic signals. Another feature is the automatic arrival control function. Guidance lines on the road will automatically stop the bus at a bus stop within 10 centimetres accuracy and 6 centimetres from the kerb. The second concept vehicle is a premium six-seat sedan or wagon called the Fine Comfort Ride which uses a 310 kilowatt fuel cell drivetrain capable of about 1,000 kilometres of driving range and a 0 to 100 kilometres per hour sprint time of just 5.4 seconds. When we think electric vehicles, most of us think of electric cars and more recently trucks and even buses. But there is an emerging business in electric motorbikes as well. Zero Motorcycles is an American manufacturer of electric motorcycles, formerly called Electrocross. It was started in 2006 by a former NASA engineer in Santa Cruz, California. The company has recently announced a new range of batteries for its 2018 models, saying that the new range will have a 10% extended range and six times faster charging. Zero has introduced three new batteries, and if owners choose to equip Zero's optional power tank to the largest battery, they could achieve a range of over 350 kilometres during city riding. And that has been the news. I asked my son about the Subaru WRX. He said for him it was the hero car of his schooling years. I always thought that that and the Mitsubishi Evo were just one period of really great cars. Fantastic bang for your buck. They were all-wheel drive, turbocharged, rally uh, heritage vehicles. And they just really, I thought, made a quantum leap in what the typical person might scrape together and buy. They weren't super cheap, but they weren't over expensive. Well, Errol is perhaps just a little older than my son, and uh, he and I have been driving the latest WRX. Errol, from your schooling days, were you uh, at the time when WRXs were coming to their own? No, I just, uh, just missed it by a few years. But uh, I'm sure if if uh, if I was still there when when it came out, that uh, there there would have been a couple in the the student car park. My son talks about other guys getting just small, you know, lower model Imprezas, and uh, you know, pretending if you like. But of course, yes. I, I met a young guy around that time who said, "I'm going to buy a WRX," and I said, "Well, are you going to be able to insure it?" 
He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It only costs five grand a year to insure. <laughs> and I said, that's a hundred dollars a week. He said, oh, is it? Well, it, it, I'm sure it's it's stretched out a little bit over the years, but it's still it's still a small car, technically speaking. That's small, as in Corolla uh, Mazda yes. three type small. Yes, which, it's still which which means it's now as big as the Camry of fifteen or twenty years ago. Yes, indeed. Did you like the look of it? I found the front nose was the more traditional, uh, a little aggressive, angular. Not so much around the edges, but that big bonnet scoop. But the back yes. looked looked a little bit more, uh, carried a bit more weight, and looked a, bit, a little bit more sedanish. Mm. Yeah, it, it it's not um doesn't feel like they've done a lot to it in the in the body department. There's the there's the front scoop and the um flared front front spoiler, but um not much else really. It doesn't have a massive wing or anything, which you get of course if you go up to the STI model. But yes, of course indeed. this is the uh, this is the regular WRX. Let's cut to the chase. Two litre, 197 kilowatts. Actually, older models used to have just a little bit more. They've detuned it slightly. It uh, comes with a CVT or a manual gearbox, and it's got about two, 380 newton metres around that figure, which is pretty good and starts at about 2,400 revs per minute, which is being turbo. That's... Um, not too low. Well, not it, it is low, but without being as low as some of the others, the lower the mm. better in many ways. You get that grunt down low. How did you enjoy driving it? Uh, look, it is a fun car to drive, and it's certainly quick. Um, although it doesn't have the it doesn't have the kick in the pants that I feel that they used to in the previous models. That's because uh, but... it was relative. Yes. See, yeah, the first one you got into would have been after getting out of a Holden Astra, whereas perhaps <laughs> now you've driven a, a, a greater range of vehicles and other vehicles have certainly catch, caught up, if not overtaken, in terms of sheer horsepower. Yeah, yeah. And it seems that this is... Um, I, I feel that the WRX now exists to sell you an STI. Yes, WRX STI is, of course, the bigger engine, nearly yes. two and a half litre and about 220 kilowatts of power and a bit yeah. more torque. Yes, and there's even a, a spec R if you want to go, you know, all the way uh, up, up, to the, up the food chain. Hmm. Um, but, of course, what we were driving, you can get on the road for about 44, 45K, um, whereas the top spec STI is um, more like is, is add another 20 grand on top hmm. of that. The, 60, the thing, 60, the, 60, almost 64 grand for the uh, Spec R WRX STI. So there's a bit of a, a bit of a range there of of prices if you uh, if you're looking to get a, a WRX. Now the thing about it is that I think that I was underwhelmed to start with simply because it was so light and easy to drive around the city. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't I, until you actually got into a place, you know, you go round a corner with the all-wheel drive, you know, grip quite well, but then coming out of that corner, it just seemed to get its claws out and go back and whoosh. It took a little while for the turbo to come in. I think you had to hmm. keep the revs up. The actual kilowatts comes in at around four or 5,000 as the maximum power. Mm, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde car because when at low revs the you can sort of potter around town and it's uh 
doesn't uh, doesn't seem to do much. So, mm. but uh, once you get the revs up, it uh, starts to get a get a bit more fun to drive. Uh, now, of course, we all get old and that. Uh, Dean, our good colleague, our artist in residence, uh, he had driven an STI some years ago when we were doing the overdrive program. And he now has a Subaru Forester. He took it in for servicing. And the car they gave him as a loan car was, in fact, somewhat older than not brand new, but was a WRX. But, you know, we're getting old. And this is what Dean said. As much as one can do in Sydney traffic, which is almost impossible. But uh, no, I promised that I would keep the revs well and truly uh, under control. It's just a, just the tiniest little urge, second gear at about 2,500 revs. That's as far as we went. The tiniest little urge. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was in me or the car. Indeed. That was uh, <laughs> Dean talking about him driving that. He, he actually found it quite comfortable. Maybe the shock absorbers were a bit worn out. but mm. he, Well, he, it, I mean, I guess we, we you do have to... A lot of people think of this as a sports car, but it's also a very practical small car. I mean, this is basically a Subaru Impreza, which is a perfectly nice, you know, small five-seater car. Um, and uh, it's got more grunt. Yeah. So how would you summarise? Well, this is the car that every boy racer wanted until the STI variant came out, that is. Um, but it's still a fast, fun to drive and very practical small car. The Subaru WRX talking there with Errol Smith and Errol to join us after the break where we're going to have a rather extended reflection on Holden and its role in, in the culture of Australia. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, of course, the last Holden has rolled off the production line. We've seen a lot of talk about people being retrenched, which is, of course, a sad thing, and had some general comments about what it means to Australia. But I wonder if there's not some more sort of earthy reflections on where they have been and what they have done to the Australian culture or had an input to the Australian culture, looking at a number of the major areas where they've had influence. Errol joins me again. Errol, before your time, but of course the late 40s and 50s, was the post-war boom, prosperity and practicality. I think that became the major part of the mm. whole... It was also the time when... We had a great passion for cars from various countries, which reflected not just the technology they had, but their very character. In Australia, I think there's a very strong British car heritage. Mm, yes. America, well, that was still quite strong. And, of course, they'd had a pretty big role even up to then. It wasn't as if they weren't in existence before that. But And European, of course, were quirky. Mm. So American were big, European were quirky, and the British, I think, were stodgy. You know, they were... Yes, the, the, the Morris, Morris miners and so on, yeah. John Howard's father had a Humber. You know, that was good, big, <laughs> solid car. I spoke to a mate of mine who was in his, who is in his 70s. His first car when he was just leaving school was an FC Holden, and he absolutely loved it. And he'd grown up in Redfern. His parents never had a car, and they never had a phone. So it's a clear indication that here's a young guy just out of school who's now getting this immense mobility. Mm. It, it's a lot about that, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's where you had, you know, I guess you, you wound up with things like, you know, the Happy Days era where the car was all about teenage and 20s-odd freedom. 
and it was a big thing. And, and of course, one of the, the things of that the, you know, the first true Holden, of course, the, the FX was, um, was that you could actually do a decent trip in a car. And that was mostly because it didn't fall apart on our crappy roads. And that reinforced our culture, didn't it? The the wide brown land, the mm, the big yeah. outdoors. My mate, you talked about the happy days. My mate who who got his uh, FC in nineteen fifty eight. He said that the back seat was very good too. I, I, I presume he took his parents around for a drive. What a lovely man he was. Yes, yes, very caring. And it was those long trips. It was the ability that a lot of British cars, of course, overheated. That's not to say. The Holdens didn't a lot, but not nearly as much and not nearly as mm. bad as that. Yeah, because they were designed to operate in, you know, 45 degree Australian summer days. Then I think we went from the 40s and 50s to the 60s. And the thing that I think came in there was a, a degree of creature comforts. But there was also, of course, the cultural change. Now, again, you remember I spoke to Dean about him. Uh, uh, we spoke earlier. He, his parents bought a Holden in 1962, having moved up from an Austin A40. But the, the vehicle he had earlier was a 1950 Austin A40 Tourer. And it was thoroughly British and uh, as unreliable as all those little British cars were in the colonies. And so, yeah, the uh, advent of the Holden was kind of a, a, um, a point of departure from the empire, I think. No longer was the mother country uh, the source of all good, all good things motoring. Yeah, the mother country. I think it was a case of us moving on from there. But it was also a case, mm. you know, he spoke there about the car that he got, which was the 62 Holden. It was a time when we started to get luxury. That's when we started to get the Holden special. Mm. We started to get things like power steering as an option. Yeah, indeed. Now, Dean remembers some of the options. But yes, there were rubber floor mats, I recall, and they were um, pretty special. And uh, the bench seat at the front had a pattern on it. No radio. I'm not even sure there was a heater. There might have been a heater in the car. Of course, the hydromatic transmission was the first automatic transmission, I think, in uh, certainly for Holden. And I think it was a two-speed transmission. And it could never quite make up its mind uh, what gear it was meant to be in. Our family did a trip regularly from Kiama in the south coast of New South Wales up to Sydney, which meant going up Mount Oosley, which was a formidable um, hill at the back of uh, Wollongong. And the old Holden struggled up there, and uh, it was always a bit of a challenge to see if it would get over in top gear, but sadly it would, it would often get close to the summit, but then it would do a, a ponderously slow change back to the lower gear, and uh, we all sighed a bit. But, uh, my parents carried a thermos and tea because very often one would have to stop halfway up the hill and let the car cool down before continuing on. But there was always a lot of other people there with the bonnets up and so you could join them and have a bit of a chat. And uh, that was motoring in the uh, very early 1960s. Have a bit of a chat. There was a social issue, really, wasn't there? But, of course, that you know, coming up Mount Oosley and it was uh, an incredibly steep climb for cars of those eras. Mm, yeah, it was a torture test, really, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, and especially you know on a hot summer's day, yes, it's a bit of a bit of a challenge. Torture test, remind me, it was at that around that time that I think most people developed the idea that within their area there was always a steep hill that they tested their cars on. 
My, mm. my uncle had an, an old valiant that he said I could get up that hill and still be doing, you know, 60 miles an hour at the top or something or some sort of figure like that. In fact, Errol, Errol, we've talked, of course, there was Holden and then Ford came along and they failed in the first year because they were much too American. They weren't adapted to the Australian road. They're too soft. Mm. But then along came Valiant. Now, you know Alan Finlay's a, a great friend of the program. He reflected on this. And, of course, the real outliers were the people who had Valiants. They were, they were very special. Those, those first Valiants, you know, the S-types and the, the R-type and the S-type, yeah. anyone who had one of those, they were, um, they were very cool. Those first Valiants had that, I haven't seen it since, the push-button automatic transmission. Do you remember that? They had, a, they had push-buttons on the dashboard to select a, the gears and uh, that was that was a real novelty that was part of what made them cool i think we had the traditional head-to-head you know catholic versus protestant communist versus capitalist in holden versus ford but the valiant was almost that weirder religion that perhaps it was buddhism or something that perhaps Mm. everything we believed in could have been undermined by this outlying car well you had to have a you had to have something out there to make everything else look good didn't you (laughs) of course the end of the 60s then moved into really some quite big cars including the monaro yes it was also just then into the 70s that we got that almost last hurrah of Australianness, football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars. That it, I don't, do you remember that advertising campaign? It was actually a rip-off of an American one. Yeah. Which is almost, uh, almost identical, except it was... Um... Baseball, hot dogs, I'm not sure what the animal was, and Chevrolets. Yes. And the ad was almost exactly the same. Hear it again? Let me tell... Yeah. Yeah, same jingle. And that song's almost become a, a Australian icon on its own, aside from a, being an ad for Holden. Yeah. Now, of course, that moved us into the time. It really started around 64 when they bought out the EH, I think that was the S model, and then the HD, they bought out the X2, which was to race at Bathurst. But, of course, it wasn't till 68 that they had the big V8 Monaro. That was a lovely time of racing when it was a case of series production cars, cars you could buy off the showroom floor that raced around the racetrack. And it was a time when they really focused on the car. The headline after Bathurst would be something like Holden 1 Bathurst, not Brock or Moffat. Yeah, the the drivers were of less significance than the Holden versus Ford, weren't they? Mm. And in fact, that was a time when the drivers were not media trained. And so you got some very earthy, you know, Alan Moffat was a surly old bugger. And Brock was the buoyant guy who smiled because you thought he wanted to smile, not because the sponsors wanted him to. They would have um, been pretty big and strong guys too, because um, you didn't get power steering. Oh, yeah. Um, the first Monaro didn't have power steering. So um, can you imagine throwing that around a racetrack? Yeah. The first Monaro also had a taco down by the gear lever. It was on the floor down by the gear lever. It was, it was because it was a literally a tack-on, a tack-on taco, mm. because it wasn't part of the dials. I always thought, though, that might have been because they thought people who drove them were the sort of people that had to look down when they changed gear. 
Yeah, I was, I was just thinking that <laughs> you, you want to you want to check the revs and make sure see if you should change yet. Yeah, but you had to look at the gear <laughs> lever to see if it, you know when you were changing. Where's the gear lever again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, where's where's which way's fourth? <laughs> the other time then that I think Holden and and Ford really made two cars that reflected our culture quite strongly the ute was one we know there's been utes and america mm. has the pickup but the pickup is a big truck like i think yes. we made the ute as a sedan with a carry in the back a two-door yeah. sedan with a carry in the back yeah much more practical and less truck like yes the, the other the other thing that that i think happened in the um especially around the 80s was the um as they got more into the sports versions of things, they started to get really ugly. And I think the uh, the epitome of that was the VL Group A SV Commodore, which has so many scoops, wheel arches, side skirts, and other plastic crap attached to it. It was a, became a rolling cliche. The Walkinshaw Holden Commodore. The Commodore was interesting, wasn't it? That, uh, that They said America was very slow to understand the oil crisis, yet when they came out in the Commodore in '78 and found really that the Ford then blitzed them in the market, that Australia wanted still to have what it called a big car, and the mm. Commodore, which had a number of weaknesses anyway, was really quite a compromise, whereas the Ford was still the big one. The, the oil crisis had almost gone gone by then, and so it didn't really work. But it was also the time we talked of utes. When utes started to move towards being a two-door sports car rather mm. than just something with huge lights and a bull bar on the front. Yes. Somebody t twigged that if you put a supercharged V8 in a ute, because it's got hardly any weight in the back, um, it's quite quick. Mm. And that the back wheels will skid all over the place, which is maybe what you want. And it's a little cheaper. Yes, that too, yes. Well, relatively cheap. I think something like 40, towards the end, 40% of Holden Utes were V8s. Mm. I once had a Ute, Holden Ute, and I wanted to move a bed from one place to the other. And so I had to drive up over a gutter to get to the back of the house so we could get the, which goes onto a reserve, to get the bed out. To go up over the gutter, I had to put a bit of timber down there to sort of make it less of a... And it was just a normal curb and gutter. You would yes. you would think the old ute could boom over that. Yeah, you'd think so. But they would have, you know, dropped the suspension and firmed it up and mm. made it a sporty sporty ride so that uh, people could um, fishtail to their heart's content. Mate, good to talk to you. Thanks for that. And uh, we'll catch you next week for some quirky news. No worries, David. Errol Smith, and we are talking the life and times of Holden. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Dean Oliver, Alan Finlay, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>